anybody have anything on their mind that we should talk about this morning? Any old question about meditation or dharma or why we're doing all this stuff? <laughs> Tell us why we're doing all this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Because there's nothing else to do. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. Presumably, we've all figured that out by now. <laughs> but then again, I suppose there's some that might not have. What does meditation do for us? does a lot of things, but the most important thing it does is uh, it, it trains our mind in a particular way that allows us to completely change the way that we experience things. Um, and it does so by degrees and in a variety of different ways. But what meditation does, that it brings us into the present, which is very, very important. And you could think of meditation as being nothing more than that, because, uh, well, I suppose there's some things that are called meditation that don't bring you into the present, but uh, I think uh, the kinds of meditation that uh, I'm primarily interested and concerned with, if you look at them, they're all about bringing you entirely into this present moment, being here now, which is really important when you consider that that's all there is. <laughs> the past doesn't exist any longer, the future doesn't exist yet, and all there ever is is the present and the here and now. So it's one of the things it does. And uh, it's interesting that by doing so, it relieves us of an awful lot of the stress that we normally experience, because uh, the activity of our mind of worrying about the future or fretting about the past is a source of a lot of uh, an ordinary person's stress in their life. And uh, interestingly enough, we probably most of us have already realized that most of the things we worry about never happen anyway. You know, but we continue to worry. And of course we can't change the past. But we continue to, you know, there's, there's, isn't it interesting we have this tendency to keep reliving the past as though somehow we could change it and even thinking about, well, if only I'd said this instead of that, you know. <laughs> but yeah, it brings us into the present, which is one very important thing it does. It, it uh, trains our mind in such a way that our mind begins to serve our highest intentions instead of uh, acting automatically in a way that is programmed, uh, you know, a kind of a, a programming that we in inherit at, at birth and which basically is leaves us entrapped in the illusions of uh, seeing things in a way that constantly propels us to want something else and do something else and be so busy and preoccupied. So the natural state of the mind of the ordinary human being is one uh, of constant restlessness and activity and movement. And a, a mind that is constantly in motion uh, can't really penetrate very deeply into things. And uh, we all know uh, from our own experiences that uh, to act with any kind of wisdom and to, to temper our behavior with any sort of uh, wisdom, balance, equanimity, uh, virtue, uh, we have to slow down. We have to give a chance for some kind of understanding to arise. 
So the other thing that meditation does is it trains the mind to, uh, as I say, come more under the control and influence of uh, uh, our, our highest uh, aspirations and our highest intentions. And the other thing that it does is it trains the mind to uh, observe clearly. It increases the power of our conscious awareness so that our observation is uh, more penetrating and more encompassing. And the other thing that it does, uh, very closely connected to that, is to clarify. Uh, because our, our perceptions of people and situations in the world in general are obscured by uh, a lot of uh, well, we're not seeing what's really there. We're obscured to a large degree what we are habituated to expect to see. And so it's like looking at the world through a pair of very muddy glasses. And so meditation helps us train the mind so that we are more likely to see the, uh, the person and the situation or the world uh, as it actually is rather than uh, as these obscurations that we bring into the moment will incline us to see things. So, meditation is most fundamentally a process of coming into the present and training the mind so that, you know, the most important thing that we have is our conscious awareness. And so we're training the mind so that, that this conscious awareness uh, begins to achieve its full potential and that uh, we can benefit from that full potential. And the big payoff of meditation is that when the, that when the mind becomes trained and, and habituated to uh, seeing clearly and uh, powerfully and in a focused way, we can see beyond those particular things that are causing our unhappiness and suffering and cause us to make other people unhappy and to increase the amount of suffering that's in the world. That's, that's the real payoff. The payoff is which the, the payoff is that things are not the way that they've always appeared to us to be. You know, and I suppose this is this is where the faith comes in. Well, faith first comes in. You sit down to meditate, and you find it really hard to believe that you can ever really do this. And then you uh, also doubt that uh, uh, e even if you did it, you know, you're you're not sure that uh, uh, you're sure. Why you're doing it, so you have to have some faith uh, that uh, there's a reason why this has been going on for so long with so many people. But because you can't, in advance, when you when you're trapped in the illusions uh, that that we all exist in, then you can't see you don't see them as illusions, and so there's no way really of knowing that there's something beyond those illusions, let alone that what is beyond those illusions will have uh, a liberating effect and uh, will leave you free from the kind of uh, dissatisfaction, uh, uh, suffering, and unhappiness that you've taken for granted that is uh, a part of life and that you've been spending your whole life trying to counteract to whatever limited degree you can by pursuing the illusions. and so. That is, in a nutshell, why we meditate. Yeah, but <clears throat> we've we've been through all that, and, mm -hmm. and and then the big question is, how can meditation help us know that we're not self-existent ourselves, as well as everything out there? Well, you see, the way that it can is by as we develop concentration and mindful awareness, we can start observing what's happening as it's happening. 
And when we do that, we'll start to notice that was that there isn't the kind of self that we think there is. We'll start to notice that uh, I can't think of a very different way to say it, but we start to notice that when you're seeing, there's just seeing. There's there's no there's really nobody doing the seeing. And the, the, the self, the seer, is something that gets introduced afterwards. And when your mind is is focused well enough and, and, and your habit of mindfulness is strong enough and you observe what's happening, you find that experience unfolds in this, in this marvelous uh, 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 light of conscious experience. And that you see that happening, and then you see after that, you see the idea of a self arising and appropriating the experience to itself. And you realize it's just another idea. Another way that it happens when you're sitting in meditation is it becomes very clear to you that, that your life is a stream of conscious experiences, and there's only two kinds of objects of, of consciousness, which are sensations and, and mental objects. And you realize that the self is just another mental object that arises every now and then. And then another thing that you observe, if, if you have trained your mind and you are observing what's happening, is that your intentions, that all along this idea you had that I'm deciding this and I'm doing this and I'm wanting this and, and, and I'm feeling this and I'm thinking this, you start to observe that, well, no, I didn't decide this. This decision just came up from the invisible recesses of my mind, and it's obviously the result of my previous conditioning. There's no I deciding this. And you see the same thing with your impulses to action or to speech and your intention. You'll see they're just arising by themselves out of the mind, out of some invisible place of the mind. You know, <clears throat> and and, and, and then at that point, even you know, if you're looking for the self, at that point you say, well, gee, if there is a self, it must be hidden in that dark back room that I can't see, because certainly the conscious, the consciousness that is observing the intention arising um, uh, didn't create the intention. And not only that, the consciousness that's observing the arising intention can see that actually it's coming out of causes and conditions. It's, coming out of past experiences. And so you begin to suspect, well, maybe there isn't even some mysterious self in, in the back room of the mind creating these intentions. They are just simply coming out of past experiences. So these are the ways in which you can begin to realize that the kind of self that we believe we have and it just doesn't exist. And this, right, what I've just talked to you about is is our natural sense is, is there must be a self because somebody is experiencing this. And there must be a self because somebody's deciding and doing. And, and so it's really powerful when your mind is, is clear enough and focused well enough. And the other thing about this, let me just make it clear, is we're not putting ourselves into some fantasy state of mind where we see something that we expect that we're going to or that some teachers told us we're going to see. We are just simply making our mind stable and making our mind powerful in its perception. And it's exactly the same stability, clarity, and power that we can observe anything else with that when we observe our own mind with, we find this, that, hey, there is no need in all of this for an experiencer. The experience just happens. There's no need in here for a decider and a doer because it happens. And then we look at where it comes from, and it, it comes not from any kind of self, but from causes and conditions. And so that's how meditation allows us to do this. But we've got to look. If we don't look, we won't find, you know. <laughs> and it really helps to have some guidance in where to look and how to look.
And how long? And how long? Is this, this, uh, it seems to me this is a very long, you have to spend a lot of time in meditation in order for, to get that to that state. Well, how long you spend, you see, you, you have to create the right conditions. And the mind that you begin with already, you know, you arrive in the moment of, of, of taking up the practice with a lot of past conditioning. Okay? And then from that more moment forward, you are you are undoing old conditioning and you are creating new conditions. So it will partly depend on what kind of conditioning you arrived with, but it will hugely depend on uh, how diligent you are in the process of creating the right conditions to actually see and understand, and also whether you're doing it properly. Because you can be very diligent and put a lot of time and energy into it, but if you're not doing it in, in the right way, it will take an awful lot longer to happen. You know. So, uh, so that's an important part of it too. How long it takes, it does not have to take a long time. It actually, it actually does not have to take a long time. And it can happen, uh, it can happen at almost any time if the conditions are right. Um, to see that the self that we think we are is just something that our mind is making up because our, our mind needs to make up the idea of a self in order to function in the world. And, and so when we realize that it's not something that's real, it's not an inner ego God that we need to keep, you know, paying obeisance to, then, then we're liberated to a large degree. So it's creating a condition so that we can see that. Likewise, uh, creating a condition so that we can see uh, what we experience as external reality for what it really is. See that, that this is as much a creation of the mind as the self is, and it serves exactly the same purpose as the self. It's a way for the mind to organize sensory experience to make sense of it and to, uh, uh, and, and to function and act. But the other conditions that are important, the the ultimate thing is to take this understanding and with that as a foundation to, uh, to go beyond these, to, to recognize that the self is an illusion, to recognize that the way we perceive the world is an illusion is one thing. But the other thing is to have some experience of what lies behind the illusion and that has its own unique set of characteristics. Because our mind is constantly regenerating appearances, constantly, so quickly that we can't see what lies behind those appearances. The only thing that will cause the mind to pause in its creation of these projections is for the mind itself to develop a very, very powerful Equanimity. Now, let me put this in another way. If we look at why the why does the mind keep creating these appearances, it, it, the mind is uh, is driven to create the appearance appearances by an internal logic, and that internal logic is one that uh, not only sees its own appearances as being real but assigns value to them. It's the fact that the mind assigns value to its own projections and its own constructs that keeps the mind churning them out. When we develop, or when the mind develops 
equanimity towards its own projections, then it becomes less prone to continue so assiduously in their creation. And that's what we're looking for, is to create a strong enough sense of equanimity that the mind pauses. And then when the last image fades away, then there is the reality that lies beyond. And the mind will resume its projection shortly thereafter. But that's all we need, is that one peak behind the curtain. Well, that's not all we need. We need to be able to go back and peek again and again. After we come back into the world of appearances and the mind thinks to itself, well, what was that? And it makes up a story about it. And we need to go back and look again to undermine the new story. You know, and, and it gets more and more refined. So where does the equanimity come from? Well, if you develop deep states of concentration and mindfulness and you sit in meditation, then uh, part of what develops is equanimity. One of the results is equanimity. You get up and you go back out in the world and you experience a lot less craving, a lot less desire and aversion. And so you have equanimity of samatha. But in the seeing into the emptiness of things and the emptiness of self, that also produces an equanimity. The more deeply we understand, you know, and if we cultivate the habit of, of reminding ourselves that things are empty and, and, and seeing if we can realize how you just recognize it, well, my mind's just making it look that way. If we do that often enough, and if we also, when we find ourselves attaching to emotions or attaching to, to goals or projecting actions or things like that, if we can train ourselves to remember what we've already discovered that, well, that feels like I'm doing it, that's just coming from some deep conditioning. There is no self. So this is, this is another way that the mind acquires equanimity, is through insight through knowledge. Uh, and when you begin to see that, well, uh, if I attach to this impulse that arises and say, I am such and such, and carry out an action in, in response to it, and I do such and such because I want such and such, and, and see that those things are only creating suffering, this is where mindfulness comes in. Your mind's been doing this all the time, and although it's a conscious mind, it hasn't put together A and B, you know, to discover that equals C. And, and the truth that you want, you want to condition your mind to discover for itself is that these things it's been doing are not producing the result it thinks it's going to. They're producing a different kind of result, and it's just contributing to the endless cycle of dissatisfaction and frustration and temporary pleasure, and so grasping after more and more. When you see this, when you see this, I should say when your mind sees this, when as a result of your practice, this mind, the very mind that's doing the projection of all these appearances, also begins to understand through mindfulness that these, these are illusions and that pursuing them is is just causing unhappiness, that creates a very powerful equanimity. So the condition that you're trying to create, what all of this adds up to in the end, that's another way you could simplify the description of the practice, is everything you're doing is trying to create enough equanimity so that the mind will cease for a moment in its seemingly endless creation of, uh, of, of a world in a particular way. And the effect of that is to give that very same mind a hugely different piece of information to process. And it takes a while for it to process it, too. Which is why, as I say, you need to, you need to go back and, and look beyond the veil uh, more, more than once in order to really get the full effect, to, get the, to produce the kind of change that needs to happen. 
was interested in one of the other talks that you gave about these processes that are taking place in the deep mind. Mm -hmm. Would you say something about that? Well, this is what our mind is, is a whole collection of different processes. That, and each process, you know, it, it's like a... Uh, each process has one particular function to fulfill. And it does so automatically. They're all connected to each other, and they're arranged sort of hierarchically. And uh, so, you know, you have a, uh, the process of, of eating that when it, you know, it gets turned on when certain things happen in the body that create hunger, and that initiates other processes that lead you to look for food, and once you found it, to start eating it, and then something else happens to turn it off. But, you know, it's, it's just a process. In a way, you know, uh, A way that you can get a handle on this, maybe, is if you understand reflexes, you know. Uh, if you tap the tendon at the knee, it sends a signal to the spinal cord, which sends a signal to the muscle because it contracts and, and goes, it's a completely automatic thing, right? Um, what you might not know, but there is, a, there's a complex arrangement of things in your spinal cord that uses that one particular reflex art in combination with another, a bunch of others, that allows you to walk. So that your brain sends a message to your spinal cord, it says, turn on the walking mechanism. And, and these, the, that simple reflex that makes your leg go out when you strike the tendon actually is a part of the walking mechanism because one part of the walking movement stretches the same tendon, and that sends a message back to the spinal cord, which causes another muscle to contract, and the leg extends. And the entire process of walking is made up of these simple reflexes. And so walking is something that happens completely automatically at the spinal cord level. And that's one of the things that I encourage people to discover when they do walking meditation. Walk slow, walk fast. When walking slow, you're contra controlling it all from up here, and it's really awkward, and it's very unnatural, and it's not very skilled and smooth, and you trip and stumble easily. But you let go of all this trying to control it from up here and walk normally, and all of a sudden it happens wonderfully, you know. Wow. And that's because it's, it's happening at this lower level. Well, you work your way up, and you'll find that all the things you do, even moral and ethical decisions, uh, even uh, the, the way that you relate to other people, they're all driven by different mental processes that are essentially no different than these reflexes for walking. You know, so uh, the more complex ones are made up of a lot of simpler ones. And so this is what our mind is: is all of these different processes. Now, one thing that doesn't happen: you might imagine that. You've got all these simple processes, and then some more complicated ones, and then a smaller layer of still more complicated ones, and then a smaller layer. And you might think up at the top, like the cherry on the, on the banana split, is one that you could say, oh, that's the self. But it doesn't work that way. That's not really the way it is. I mean, it could have been that way, I suppose. I, I don't know why it didn't turn out to be that way. But when you look in your mind, as soon as you sit down to meditate, and you say, okay, I'm going to sit here and observe my breath, you discover that that, that I, that voice, that's only one of those higher mental processes. And as soon as it generates that intention, it's only a matter of time before some of the other mental processes at the same or not too far from that same level of in the hierarchy, say, enough of this, we'll do something else. <laughs> right? And in the process, you'll notice that, you know, it's like inside your head, there's this little uh, a top hat with a big letter I on it, and it gets passed around. And when you sat down, 
one mental processor is wearing the hat that said I. But 10 minutes later, the other one that wants to go have a nap says, you know, and, and, and what you find going on in your mind is, oh, I'd really like to go have a nap. You know, so I would really like to go have a nap, you know. But, you know, I, I said I was going to meditate, you know. But the I, the I that wants to have a nap is now the one wearing the, the, the hat, not the I that said, that, well, I've always said I was going to learn to meditate, and today was the day I was going to start, you know. And you see? So whether you've noticed or not is one thing, but you will notice as soon as you start to pay attention to what's going on in your mind, is that about as close as you come to the eye that would be the cherry on the top of the banana split is more like a board of directors, you know, or, or a, a, a senate, <laughs> right? With a lot of different members. And they don't always show up to vote on any particular decision. <laughs> Sometimes they arrive late and they say, whoa, I don't like anything that's going on here and they want to change it all, you know. But you, if you think that you are your mind, then you're going to have to recognize that your mind is many different things with different agendas going on simultaneously. And that, uh, so... Even if you are an I, you're not a singular I. You're a whole multiple of I's. So, so then what does meditation do, do with that? Well, meditation makes you aware of that. And that's what's really important, that you become aware of that. Because, you see, meditation, th this whole mess of mental processes has been merrily going along, as it does in, in everyone that you see in the world. Um, and uh, it kind of works, but not that well. And the collective finds itself experiencing a lot of suffering. Now, what you, what you really need to understand when you start looking into this is what is suffering and where does it come from? You know, we, we start by saying, well, I suffer, and it's the world's fault. Because <laughs> if the, I can clearly see that if the world was different, I wouldn't suffer anymore. And, 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 and we often see if we can go change the world so we won't have to suffer anymore. But the truth is that suffering is just an, an emotion, a feeling, that's created by the same mind that's experiencing the suffering. And one of those mental processes that makes you up, its whole job is to flood the collective with suffering under certain kind of circumstances. So it looks at what's going on and it says, hey, this is no good. Turns on the suffering and everybody says, oh, we're suffering. What are we going to do about it? Let's get busy changing things. Right? So you see, meditation... When it allows you to see what's going on, then you, you can start to change the way this whole thing works. The one wonderful thing that we have is our conscious awareness and the fact that uh, we can learn to focus that conscious awareness. That light, that, uh, that light of consciousness can be brought to bear on what's actually going on. And all these mental processes which would have been operating in the dark have a chance to see what's going on. And then and, and then they can see what the result of their activities are. You have a mental process. You started off born with something which predisposed you in this direction. But then through your life, you've reinforced it. It's a mental process that makes you disposed to, to anger. Just like you have another mental process that makes you predisposed to, uh, to desire. And throughout your life, different situations have arisen. And this mental process that is the anger generating process has flooded the whole system with feelings of anger 
and then they led to certain kinds of behaviors. Now this this exists because it serves a kind of primitive function. But what we're what we're doing through meditation and through cultivating mindfulness is we're bringing ourselves to a point where instead of this going along automatically, now when anger arises, first of all, we can see it in that way. We used to see it as, oh, I'm angry, which was the first mistake. And then the next thought that would come is, I'm angry because of her or him or this or that, right? That's the second thought. And then comes the, the, the thought, so I'm going to do this about it, you know. Uh, when we were little, we strike out or scream. And then as we get older, we find more sophisticated ways of responding out of that. All that we're doing different is focusing the light of mindful awareness on that. And if we can learn to remember, first of all, that, that if we discovered and accepted and become at least to some degree convinced that maybe there's some truth in this idea that that I am not I am not the owner and the experiencer of the emotions that arises, then we can look at anger arising and say, oh, there's anger arising. And so in the next step, remember first of all we said, I am angry and it's his fault. Now we say, oh, there's anger arising, and that's because I conditioned myself to become angry in these circumstances in the past. And then, instead of getting lost in the action of what you're going to do about or to that source of your anger, is that you see that, oh, being angry feels terrible. It doesn't feel good in my body. It doesn't feel good in my mind. Uh, it makes me do things that are not beneficial to myself or to others. It does not lead me closer to awakening and to liberation. And you, you don't need to get into a lot of analysis of it because if you are mindful, those things are obvious. They are just dead, certain, unmistakable, wow, how could I have never really noticed that before, kind of obvious. And because these facts are being illuminated, by conscious awareness, that part of your mind that has been flipping on the anger switch all these years picks up on that. It's got a new piece of information. It doesn't mean that it won't turn on the anger switch in the future, but if every time you do it, it's exposed to this mindful awareness, it's going to change the way that it functions. It's something very similar that happens when mindful awareness is present and the mind stops making its projections and you have an experience of the reality that lies behind appearances. Because that same conscious awareness of ultimate truth registers on the mind and where it registers very particularly is in those, those mental functions that have always created the sense of I and created the sense of other as being real. And the difference is that after that, it's just not the same. There's still a sense of I, but uh, it, it doesn't fool you in the same way. And there's still a sense of there being a world of others but you're not fooled by it in the same way anymore. So, mindful awareness is working in the same way, producing the same kind of change. You know, from the very first time you start to apply it to your experience in your life, as it does when you have that experience of stopping the mind's fabricating activity long enough to experience the reality that lies behind that. So it works in exactly the same way. It's not some new kind of magical thing that never was before. It's the same old stuff, you know, um, but 
it's happening in, in, in a new way and producing a completely different kind of result. And this is how the very same mind that is responsible for your illusions can become a mind that is possessed of wisdom. And then instead of acting out of compulsion, driven by craving, it becomes a mind that acts out of compassion and wisdom. But is there any one part of all those different processes that wants to put it all together and make it <coughs> all work together so that you don't have all these... Well, that, that really is, that's what concentration, the concentration part of meditation is about. And that's something I think a lot of people have failed to understand. Uh, when we do concentration meditation, uh, it, it develops through stages and we find our concentration deepens more and more. Um, and you could naively, losing, using the same kind of illusory projections, say something like, well, I get to the point where I can keep my mind from wandering. But what's actually happening is the, the, your mind as this collection of processes is becoming uh, trained and conditioned in a different way. You get to a point in your practice where you're very good at staying at the meditation object, with the meditation object. But if your vigilance lapses, it's gone. Now, the only reason that can happen is that there are still mental processes active that want to be doing something else. They want to be thinking about something else, or want to be having a nap, or want to just sit here and feel good. That want to do something other than maintain continuous mindful awareness of this this same old meditation object. So the 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 way that you move from that stage, you know, and if you have seen this, if you're familiar with the seven stages of development of samatha that I passed out to people, it's the seventh stage. The seventh stage you have single pointed concentration. But you've got to stay on top of it because it won't stay. It's really, you know, your concentration is great. You sit there and say, you know, there's almost nothing else in your mind. A very occasional thought comes and goes, and a very occasional sensation will manage to penetrate into your awareness. But you are just so focused and so steady, and, and you can say to yourself, I can't imagine how anybody's concentration could be any better than this. And actually, that's pretty much true. I mean, there are refinements, but that's pretty much true. But in the seventh stage, you have to stay on top of it, because if you slack, your mind's gone, either into dullness or into some distraction. And that's because your mind is not yet unified. So when you get to what happens next is called effortless concentration. You no longer have to be vigilant. You no longer have to be uh, constantly on top of it. You can just relax and be stable in your awareness. That change, that effortlessness, is due to the fact that all of these different things that make up your mind are now, they're now on target with the same project. They're not trying to make something different happen. That's why concentration becomes effortless. And another marvelous thing that happens in association with this unification of the mind is that a powerful sense of joy and happiness and even physical pleasure arises in association with it. Unification of mind by eliminating the inner tension produces a state of joy. And this, this is not just some thing that happens in meditation. People experience it when they become totally involved in some kind of activity. They are joyfully engaged and every part of their mind is into that same thing. That's called a state of flow in 
modern psychological terms. And uh, there's, uh, 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 there are books about it, and there is uh, one particular uh, psychologist uh, called Csikszentmihalyi who's done a lot of research on the flow state. And the descriptions of the flow state are exactly, you know, you take them out of context. You take the description out of context, and you show it to somebody and say, oh, I recognize that. The person's describing piti in, uh, in samatha practice. No, they're describing what happens to them when they're doing brain surgery or when they're playing golf or when they're, you know, doing something else that happens to put them into the state. That's what happens when the mind unifies. Concentration becomes effortless because now there aren't different parts of the mind trying to go different places. But it's still many different processes. I mean, you haven't changed the ultimate reality. You haven't created a self out of all these different parts. They're still different parts. But they're all functioning uh, in harmony now. They're all in sync. They're all cooperating rather than, than each one struggling for, you know, well, I want things to go my way. This is more important than this silly sitting there looking at the breath. Let's do this more important thing. What's happened is that they've all gotten on to the same project and say, okay, I guess this is what we're doing, so this is what we're doing. But that mind, when you have that kind of mind, though, when you have a unified mind, if you think about how well you can understand when you focus your ununified mind on things, imagine how well you can see and understand things when you focus a unified mind on things. The other thing about a unified mind is it doesn't need to focus. The wonderful thing about reaching this particular stage in Samatha, which you achieved through practicing on a single object, called single-pointed attention, but once you got there, you don't need to be single-pointed anymore. Now you can just expand the awareness, because by letting go of an object, your mind's not going to you know, go 16 different directions at once and be trying to multitask. You can just open up the awareness, and all the different mental processes at once are saying, you know, like, they all got their arms over each other's shoulders, and they're saying, yep, yeah, let's watch what happens. You know, and that's wonderful. That, that's, the, that's the basis for the Mahamudra practice, when you have an open, space-like attention, and then you can just let whatever arises arise, and, and the whole collective of consciousness observes it, and it observes it with the power of the unified mind. And it sees, oh, yep, there's that arising and passing away. Oh, and there's that arising and passing away. Oh, and look, look at what it's like in between one thing arising and passing away and the other thing passing. It all starts to become clear. And in, in that particular meditation, you see a lot of the nature of the mind. The emptiness of appearances becomes really obvious because now you see that each of these appearances is like a wave rising on the surface of the ocean and disappearing back into it. And you become really aware of the ocean because before all you saw was the waves. But now, you know, anyway. So the unification of the mind is a very important part of this practice and it's how we get to where we, where we need to be. Thank you. You're welcome. Any comments? Go ahead. Are you, um, I've been here in a while. Are we still um, focusing on the breath? Um, yes. <coughs> to, uh, yes. To, you, you need to have some way to stabilize the mind. Uh, you, uh, and, and we use the breath, the sensations of the breath, uh, because it, it, it's really well suited to that. It could be absolutely anything. But yes, we're still using the sensations of the breath as the object. When you get to the stage that I talked about, this eighth stage where you have effortless concentration, then uh, at that point, you are capable of practicing this uh, open space-like awareness. But uh, if you try to do it before that, you're not going to have much success. So you want to stay with a single object. And 
I, I like the sensations of the breath. You use, yes, there's, you use primarily, throughout you are primarily using the same sensations of the breath at the nose, wherever in the nose. I mean, we say the tip of the nose, but, you know, some people feel it on their upper lip, some inside the nose, you know. We use the sensations in a localized area primarily. But later on in the, in the practice, um, as as the as your mindful awareness becomes stronger, there'd be a natural tendency to be aware of the breath simultaneously in in a larger area and perhaps in the whole body. And at that time, we make that a part of the practice as well. We use that. Uh, we can use that in two ways. We can use that to further increase the the, the power of our mindful awareness, and the other way we can use it is to help uh, bring us to single-pointedness because what happens is it takes so much of our attentional capacity to be aware of the whole body or a large part of the body that there's not much room left in the mind for thoughts and for attending to other sensations. And then we can go back to the tip of the nose and be very focused. What we don't really ever need to do not saying there's anything wrong with it, except that it's not particularly useful and productive, is to try following the breath into the body. And you could do that, but it's no more effective than simply watching the sensations that arise and disappear in one particular area. You know, And the nose, there's certain reasons for using the nose, but we could use, you could use the rise and fall of the abdomen, or you you could use the rise and fall of, of, of the chest or, you know, anywhere you chose that there is a distinct sensation associated with the breath. You could focus on that. But in terms of having a, a closely circumscribed, relatively small focus of attention, it doesn't matter where it is. When we want to do practices that involve a larger area, it uh, it is best to just start expanding until eventually we're feeling the breath in the whole body. So between those two, there's, like I say, there's nothing wrong with following the breath into your body, but it's not, it's not giving us any, it, it's not doing anything particularly more helpful than what we're already doing. Okay? Now in some individual case, somebody might have a particular kind of problem, and Perhaps it would make sense for a period of time for that person to practice in that way. Okay. Do you recommend um, counting, or um, is that a mantra? Counting, when, uh, until you're able to stay stably on the breath, counting is a very useful tool, but it's limited. Um, if you count too long, then your mind wanders and you keep on counting at the same time. Because there are all these different mental processes, one mental process can say, okay, well, I'll take care of the counting. And the others will say, well, good, I'll take care of the thinking and the mind wandering and the what's for dinner. <laughs> right? So the way you use counting, I, I, I think it's really good every time you sit down to count the first ten breaths. Because in a way you're conditioning your mind, you know, it's sort of, lets the whole collective know that, okay guys, we're getting ready to meditate, counting's happening. <coughs> Count your first ten breaths. And start over as many times as you have to until you get to ten. And then, once you've gotten to ten, try following the breath without counting. If you find your mind's just, if you've got a lot of monkey mind going on, go back to counting the breath. But, uh, you know, do the same thing. Start over as many times as you need to until you've had ten consecutive breaths, and then see if you can go without the counting. And it doesn't matter how many times you go back to the counting, but what you're what you'll find is that the counting it, it's it just loses its value and effectiveness uh, past a certain point, and that's why the uh, 
the rule is usually to to limit yourself to counting ten breaths. Okay, but you can use that as much as you need to. The other thing that you can use, if you're still in a stage of your practice where you're finding it difficult to stay on the breath, is after you finish counting, then you can start saying to yourself things like beginning, end, beginning, end, or just in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath. You can use that sort of talking to yourself to help you stay with it. But the same thing, that's only going to be helpful uh, on a temporary basis, and you're always trying to move beyond that where you don't need those sorts of aids anymore. Uh, even if you start labeling uh, in, out, in, out, or, or in, middle, out, pause, in, middle, out, pause, or something like that, there is still a tendency, after some point, one part of your mind will take over reciting the words, but your conscious awareness is going to be focused on, you know, other things. <laughs> so, so these things are all helpful and use them. Some people are more visual rather than Verbal, visual than more visual than verbal, and so they might find it useful to project some sort of mental image, uh, you know, uh, something expanding or contracting or rising and falling or some shape unfolding that corresponds to the breath, and that helps to keep them on it for a while. And it's very sim similar to uh, using the labels. Uh, it, it, uh, it can help you initially, um, and your mind can also find a way to uh, let, let it happen without really following the breath. You're just trying to get to that place where you can stay on the breath. And uh, the important things about that are that you don't ever let yourself get, uh, get stressed, annoyed, have expectations. Just accept the fact that you're going to have to recognize that your mind has wandered and you're going to have to bring it back to the breath some unknown number of times before you achieve perfect concentration. So just think of it this way. Each time your mind wanders and you bring it back, you know, that's, that's one more that you can cross off. You know, one, of you <laughs> one less time that you're going to have to do it. And don't worry about the fact that it keeps happening because it will, it will happen and then it will gradually stop happening. With how long you sit? Yeah. Um, well, now usually when somebody begins to practice, they'll start off for a shorter period of time and then gradually extend it. Um, and you need to you need to push yourself. Um, there is uh, if if you always meditate for a particular period of time and then you try to sit longer than that, uh, there is some part of your mind that's going to say, hey, I thought we were done, you know, and it's going to turn on the switch that floods your mind with feeling of restlessness and impatience. Right? And so in order to extend your meditation time, you're going to have to remember not to say, oh, I'm restless and impatient, I guess I better quit and go do something else, and say, Oh, there's restlessness and patience arising. Oh yeah, I should have known that would happen. Oh well, I'll let me go back to my breath. And, and then you can go beyond that. Anyone else have anything? you suggest for sleepiness? <laughs> what? Sleepiness. Know, it, you know, it doesn't always happen, but sometimes mm -hmm. I get to a point where there's nothing, there seems to be emptiness, and then I realize that I'm sleeping. I'm getting yeah. <laughs> very sleepy. Uh, sleepiness is very much the same as uh, distractions. It's something that your mind will want to do rather than continuing the practice. And you, you, you train yourself uh, 
out of it in very much the same way. Except that in the case of sleepiness, you have to do something. Uh, you, the energy level of your mind falls, and that's why you become dull and then drowsy and then sleepy, or, or fall asleep. And so you have to, first of all, learn to recognize it, and to learn to recognize it sooner and sooner. Because, you know, it starts out as very subtle, and then it gets stronger, and then it gets stronger, and then you notice it. So you try, the earlier you can notice it, the, the better. Once you've noticed it, though, you need to do something to increase the energy level of the mind again. You need to rouse yourself back up to a state of, of, of full wakefulness and alertness. And so there's different ways that you can do that. And uh, these different ways are appropriate to different degrees of dullness that you're experiencing or sleepiness. So what you'll need to do is to match the thing that you do. The antidote to dullness needs to be matched pretty well to the strength of the dullness. And what you're looking for is a strong enough antidote that it brings you back to a state of alertness that is sustained for at least several minutes, say five minutes. You know, if you sink right back into the dullness again after 30 seconds, then you didn't use a strong enough antidote. Okay? So you need to use something stronger. And then it is just a process. The process of training is, is learning to recognize more quickly and then always applying the antidote and just re repeating the process over and over again until the time comes that you are rarely, if ever, subject to dullness and drowsiness. But what are the antidotes? The antidotes are, depending on how strong the dullness is, uh, Drowsiness can be overcome by something that kind of shocks the system into uh, a state of alertness. So if, if you're already feeling drowsy, I recommend taking several deep breaths. And if you're in a situation where you're not going to disturb somebody else, let, let the breath out very slowly against resistance. Right? You know, take a deep breath and, and you'll just feel the rush of energy up to your head when you do that. And if you do that several times, you should be wide awake. Another thing, if, if you're sitting with other people and you don't want to disturb them, is you can do the same thing, take deep breaths and let them out more gently. Another thing you can do is to tense all of your muscles and relax them. And this is just, you're just waking yourself up, you know. So, if it's drowsiness, wake yourself up in that way. If you catch it earlier, then you can use uh, uh, not so strong antidotes. Um, for the subtlest form of dullness, all you really need to do is to refocus your awareness on the meditation object and bring it up to the same intensity and clarity that, that you become used to, that, that you know that you're capable of. Uh, but that's, that only, that usually you're a pretty experienced meditator in about the fifth stage of the practice and you're working with eliminating the subtlest forms of dullness for that to really be an, an adequate thing to do. Um, normally what keeps your mind awake is the stimulation we get from the senses. And so what you can do uh, when dullness is not very strong, but, but uh, it's definitely there, is instead of just being focused on the breath, expand your awareness to your whole body Feel all the different sensations in your body. Listen to the sounds around you. Um, just, just become aware of everything. You can open your eyes if you open your eyes, and, and opening your eyes and listening and feeling will, will arouse your your mind to a certain extent. And if dullness is not too great, then that will be quite sufficient in itself. Uh, you can also meditate with your eyes open. If that seems like if, if that seems like it's working, just you know, more of a broader awareness, and you're kind of awake. Uh, in, in order to, to help stay alert, is you might meditate with your eyes open rather than closed, not focused on, not looking at anything in particular, just uh, just just open, and your attention is back on the sensations of your breath. So, and then if that's not enough. You know, if you find, sometimes there's, uh, 
when the dullness is stronger than the antidote that you are applying, you'll have an experience called sinking. You'll bring yourself back up to alertness, and then you, 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 you know, it's like you've, you've risen to the top of the water in the pool, and you immediately feel yourself starting to sink again. So you find yourself sinking, you need to do something stronger. You need to do something like the muscle clenching or the deep breathing. And even if doing, if doing those, you still find yourself sinking, then stand up, meditate standing up for a while. Switch from sitting meditation to walking meditation, or even go and splash some cold water in your face and then go sit down again. You know, so. Do whatever is necessary to overcome the sinking so that you have like several good solid minutes before the dullness comes back. And then repeat the process. And don't be concerned with how often this happens or how often you need to repeat the process. If you've aroused yourself strongly enough, you're training the mind. If it's strongly enough that you stay alert for several minutes, it's going to produce the training effect. What you'll have, if you're having a sit where there's a lot of dullness, you might experience at some point you'll apply one of these antidotes and you'll become really wide awake and alert and it won't be a problem again for the rest of the sit. And that's great. This is, this is sort of the overall direction that you're moving towards as you'll find that more and more often that's the case. Dullness comes on, you notice it quickly, you apply the antidote, maybe you have to repeat it two or three times, but then, well, after that you're okay, it's no problem. And the time will come where you very rarely have to do this at all. Most people don't like dullness because dullness makes it, or don't like dealing with dullness. Dullness is pleasant. You just, oh, you just really, really want to go into it. And it's painful to pull yourself out of it. Ouch. I want to do that to myself. It's so nice just to get in this nice little dreamy state. So, and, and as a result of that, a person had very easily become prone to being annoyed because there's dullness. Or feel like, oh, this is a problem. i got to do something. It's just, just, you know, what's the matter with me? Or I hate this. Or, you know. And those are the kinds of thoughts that you, you don't want to have those thoughts. They will, they will actually make it more difficult for you to recognize dullness. Because, you know, if you beat yourself up for being dull, then that part of your mind whose job it is to say, hey, I think dullness is happening, it's going to say, hey, I'm not saying anything. We get beat up when we speak up. So you got to, you got to avoid negative reactions towards your dullness. You got to stay equanimous and accepting. And okay, yeah, I, I'm going to have to work with dullness whenever it's there. <laughs>